Welcome to the ITAM Review Podcast, news, reviews and resources for ITAM, SAM and software licensing professionals. Welcome to the ITAM Review radio show for September 2019. Welcome. Welcome everyone. Good morning. Hello. 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 A few in bits of industry news uh, this month. I think you're writing an article on this anyway, AJ, so maybe we can refer people to the link, but there's been a very interesting case in France whereby the game manufacturer Steam has been, uh, there's been a case whereby the French court has said you're allowed to resell the license for Steam apps, which has been very interesting. I think they're based on subscription as well, which is really interesting. So if yeah. that, and that's gone to appeal, so it'd be really interesting to see if uh, you can resell a subscription to get a gaming subscription. Um, that would open up all lots of different precedents in terms of IP. Um, so look out for that one from AJ in the near future. Um, IBM's launched a new program for uh, their, they've sort of taken this foot off the pedal for auditing and I've asked partners to, they've built a partner model for auditing. Anyone want to describe what's happening with that one very briefly? What, so the two audit partners for the last twenty years for IBM are within that group. Yes, yeah, that'd be it. I'm saying, I'm saying no more. I mean, there are there are others. So I think it's it's similar to the Microsoft partner program, which is where they they sort of said we we'll, we won't audit you if you're working with this partner. Anyway, Rich has done a good deep dive on that, so we'll add the link to that one. Zylo, I would say one of the leaders in the SaaS management space has taken 25 and a half million for the next round of funding. AJ, give a quick update on that one. Um, yeah, that was just announced yesterday. Um, Zylo are undoubtedly the biggest of the um, SaaS management startups, um, certainly in terms of employees. And now uh, with this second uh, series of funding, um, that means they've had around about $35 million in funding since, since they started. That's really kind of, they've gone out of startup phase and now they're really in kind of push forward and, and, and uh, you know, go for scale phase, I, I suppose. Um, I mean, that, that really, to me, suggests that that's, that market is maturing for, for, for such a large investment to come in. Um, the people behind that investment are, are people like Slack and Salesforce. That's quite interesting. Slack and Salesforce are <laughs> investing in a company that's going to potentially reduce their revenue. So, yeah, that, that's the first, of, first maybe of many, but certainly that puts them way ahead of all their competitors in terms of capability in terms of having cash in the bank to spend. Does it does it reduce their revenue or does it make it happier customers because they're spending only what they're using and therefore well, they have better loyalty and stay with that SaaS application in the longer term? Absolutely. And 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 that would be the logical outcome of that approach for uh, for them. If they're thinking about customer success, then that's their approach. That's what IBM are sort of doing with the IS, ISP program. They're thinking, well, hang on, we actually want to uh, you know, we, we, we don't want to have this adversarial relationship with with our customers. How can we how can we change it? So yeah, potentially. Uh, quick bit of iTime review news: We'll be doing a special offer on the next podcast. There's going to be a, opt, uh, a podcast for Australian uh, practitioners um, in start of October, and there'll be a special offer in that podcast for availability of Australian conference tickets. So if you're one of our listeners that listens all the way to the end. And you're based in Australia. Listen out, and you can get uh, access to 
tickets to the Australian conference if you listen throughout the whole podcast for the next the next podcast. And we will know if people fast forward. Yes. So it's <laughs> possible. So yes, yes, we've got ILMT on people's podcast players. Um, final bit of industry news to cover this month is Oracle and VMware seemingly putting aside their disputes around Oracle database in virtualization and having some form of friendly partnership. Anyone want to describe what's yep. going on here? Yeah, uh, we, we discussed this on the Oracle um, SSO event we had last week, which is available for download as well if you uh, want to have a real deep dive into Oracle stuff. But um, this one, is, uh, Larry announced it at um, Open World um, probably a week Monday ago now. It's quite a big partnership because VMware has never been officially supported as a, as a platform by Oracle. So if you wanted to deploy Oracle on VMware, you weren't officially supported. And that is potentially quite a big issue for organizations that have to be able to prove that the software they're running is fully supported from both sides. So Oracle will support VMware, VMware will support Oracle. That is as far as it goes. Now the aim is potentially to really just kind of oil the oil the wheels and, and, and make it easier for people, for companies to migrate their perpetual Oracle licenses to the cloud, which is Oracle's aim. Um, this doesn't change anything around the ongoing forever and a day problems around virtualization of Oracle software. So Oracle haven't changed their counting rules for VMware. There's no concessions here or anything. Um, it's just another partnership that they, they announced a partnership with um, Microsoft for Azure probably a couple of months ago. Um, and so they've got Azure and VMware on board now. The big one missing is AWS. Um, and I don't see that coming along anytime soon because Larry spent a fair chunk of his um, keynote dissing AWS and Amazon Cloud in general, now Amazon Cloud Services and saying Oracle was better. Um, not entirely sure that's true. Probably the market will decide on that one in particular. But um, so, so yeah, um, big partnership with VMware. And Oracle need these partnerships to really kind of push cloud. Um, uh, there's a lot more on that in the Oracle SSO that we ran last week. So uh, if you're interested, um, you kind of have a listen to that. Cool. Just a, 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 an addendum to that, AJ, as well. I saw a quite an interesting post from uh, Craig Renty of Palisade Compliance that, um, you know, that, that there was a warning almost potentially that if you're ringing up Oracle, to say that you've you've got your you know enterprise edition on on a VMware instance, um, be aware that you know there may be sort of transfer of information back to LMS because it could be flagged as a potential um, audit target as well. Yeah, yeah. So it's Absolutely. you know it's you know you pay your money, you take your choice, you know. It, yeah, it's the, it's the usual, isn't it? Nothing's nothing's really changed around the licensing. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it's as long as you, you still need to put all of your measures in place to make sure you have it absolutely isolated. Um, you know, put it on a, in a separate vCenter and server environment. Make sure all of the uh, networks and the storage is uh, isolated, uh, or even better, just don't run it on VMware. <laughs> <laughs> so we don't we don't often get. Um, letters in from podcast listeners so thank you very much to elizabeth for sending these in she's given us some ideas about what she'd like covered on the podcast so um it's fantastic you, you give it thank you elizabeth you've given us some fantastic ideas here so all these these are really relevant and i'm we're going to try and get through as many as we can and then maybe cover some more on a, on a future podcast 
So this comes from Elizabeth. So are there are there basic practices all companies should be utilising regarding audit defence? So what's if, if you're a new newcomer looking at audit defence, what, what are the basic things you ought to do, do you think? I think the first thing to check is actually have have you got a an audit policy um, setting the principles and, and ground rules about managing an audit and B, do you have an audit process? You know, and I, and I think once if you haven't done that, then obviously you need to be thinking about getting those in place. You also need to think about who your stakeholders are going to be during an audit, because obviously, you know, as an ITAM manager or an ITAM team, you can't just manage an audit on your own. You need contributions from stakeholders, and now that may differ from organisation to organisation. But I mean, a basic set of stakeholders would be, you know, someone from IT finance, IT commercial. Um, you know, IT service delivery, uh, potentially from legal, um, you want to have involved, you want to probably have budget holders involved for the people that are most likely to end up paying the bill if there is an issue. So can um, we, Barry, and you need some Barry, license uh, specialisation as well. Can, can we unpick that a bit? Because I know that you do this for your customers. Let's say that, let's say that uh, the customer's just received a letter or some sort of engagement that there's going to be a... Um, an audit taking place. When yeah. when does the policy kick in, and what would it do in in receipt of a letter? How would the policy how how would it actually look? What would it, what would it look like in layman's terms? The, the, the policy should kick in the moment the letter hits the mat. Um, I mean, one of the one of the difficulties here is is and I've got quite a bit of experience of this in in the past. Is audit letters can go to completely arbitrary people within the organisation. I mean, I, I've Obviously, you, the, the vendor is going to send an audit letter to whomever they have as a, as a customer contact for that contract that they want to audit. Um, so it could end up somewhere. So what, what you need to do is actually have a, a clear statement within your policy that if you are in receipt of a software vendor audit letter, it should be forwarded to person X, um, with X, in my view, being the IT asset manager. Yep. So that, that's your starter for 10, you know. Um, yeah. I'd also I'd also add to that as well, Barry. Is sometimes letters will come from um, sales sales areas of of businesses of vendors. So it yeah. could be it could be a fishing expedition as opposed to a bona fide audit, as covered by any contract that might have been signed. Absolutely. And can I also throw the other caveat in there that it may not actually say software audit. It may say some engagement or review. And it may also come from a third party that's acting on behalf of your vendor that is doing the audit. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think also in the policy, you need to have a, a statement linked to this that says, you know, fairly fairly high up, you do not share any deployment data with a software vendor, no matter what they might say, even if it's not an audit scenario. You know, because yeah. I, 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 yeah. I had one recently with Open Text where they just went straight to the um, IT delivery guys. The word audit was never mentioned. And he said, oh, we're just doing a quick check. Can you tell us this? And the IT delivery guys gave him all this data back. Yeah. You know, next thing you know, clients got a bill for over a million pounds. So you need to make sure that people understand you don't share data with a software vendor without reference to the ITAM team. Yeah. And I, yeah. I think and the goal of this, this policy or the process is to be able to say, and, and you're not going to get there overnight, it'll take time, but the, the, the goal would be to say, okay, We've got the letter. We've got the initiation of an audit. We know what we're doing. We know how to escalate it, and we've got a process for following that audit, which is your internal process. It's not the process of the vendor, 
because they're going to want to put you through their own sausage machine. It's your process for dealing with yeah. it internally to be able to yeah. manage it throughout, yeah. throughout, the, throughout the process. The goal is to make sure that when you do receive that letter, it's not panic stations running around like a headless chicken, that you're calm, you know exactly what you need to do, you know, you need to know who to engage and that you can really kind of take control of that audit process. That's my yeah. view on it. Yeah. And I, th I think that's the key bit as well, is taking control, not allowing the vendor to have control of the process, making sure that, you know, everyone within your organisation understands and that, and that you keep control and you set the agenda and you set the pace of the audit as well. Yeah, it depends on the size of the company as well. <clears throat> With certain companies, you can engage a separate project manager from within a pool, and you could get them to lead the audit under direction, so you don't actually have to face the audit company. Um, and then you can get legally involved. But if you're a small company, you're probably going to end up having to do most of that yourself. So, yeah. and then the communications piece and actually awareness of what the SAM team do is really, really important. So, you know. You were discussing about what happens if someone else in the business gets a letter. Well, they should know that in the event of getting an, a letter that's asking them to send some sort of data out to a vendor, they come and speak to you first. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's really easy to be too helpful, and um, um, you know, having come from a technical background, I, I I've done this with vendors when I when I was a techie. I, you know, um, IBM would say, "Oh, you know, how many servers have you got?" And I would just tell them. Um, so it comes back to comms plans, really, and actually, actually, you know, getting out there, talking to your your the people who are talking to the vendors, and say, look, this is the way we do it. This is why we do it this way. Um, it doesn't need to be a really complicated policy. I think that most audit policies could probably fit on one page. Yeah, um, it starts it yeah. starts with comms, and it starts with who the stakeholders are. Hey, AJ, speaking of which, there is. I'll, I'll try and find the link, but the, I think it's the Dutch government have put their policy on the web somewhere it's public mm -hmm. domain so if somebody wanted a starting point for where to start a policy i'll see if i can find it and, and put it in the show notes so you've got somewhere to start at least yeah i think i think to the possibly the next step then at that point is to from a sand manager perspective would be to shrink the scope is to get it down to the smallest possible footprint as possible so if you've got people who are I mean, if you are of an international size and they're saying we're auditing in the UK, and by the way, here's some scripts going run. Um, a, you don't. A, you probably don't run the scripts, but B, you certainly don't run the scripts in France or Germany or Italy. Um, don't don't give more information away than is absolutely necessary. So I think I think there's there's little bits before that as well, Rory. To be honest, so obviously make sure you need to form. I mean, we've talked about having a project manager. Well, you need to have an audit group, a core audit mm -hmm. group actually manage that audit through and as I say represents different aspects of the business and I think you need to discuss fully with them and make sure absolutely before anything you understand exactly what the audit letter says yeah you know what what contract is the vendor citing you know what's the scope of that contract when did you buy it what products are in scope what countries in scope so you're right you do need to shrink the scope yeah. but I think this this is all way before you even engage with the vendor because I think if you have any doubts whatsoever and i urge all my clients to do this if there's anything about that letter that you don't understand the first thing you do is write back to the vendor and say explain this yeah what does it mean what's the scope what's the contract what license entitlement are you auditing us against yeah and also be useful if you haven't got an nda in place to get one sorted yes yeah, absolutely. And, that, and that's, that's the next step for me is, is actually, once you have a clear understanding of the path that the audit's following, make sure you have your NDA. NDA. And I, I don't think, 
No, no, just that, Dave. I don't think it's a good idea. I think it's a must-have. You absolutely must have an NDO in place. Now, most software vendors won't give you one if they're doing a direct audit because they'll claim that the confidentiality clause of the master agreement covers it. But with a third-party auditor, an NDO is an absolute given. Well, actually, it then has to be a tri-party NDA. Well, I, I would agree with that, but I've, I've also sat in lots of rooms where the vendor said, no, we're not we're not signing up to that. If you want an NDA with the third-party order, fine, but we, we're not signing up to that because the confidentiality clause covers it, and they will absolutely refuse to do it sometimes. It, it's also quite a nice little delay tactic while, they, while you run around yeah. and sort of stuff out, but while they go away and think about it. And that's... The mention of third parties too is quite interesting because um, you're you're within your rights. Um, obviously, if if you've had a particular third party in before and they've uh, um, they've not been particularly good or supportive or whatever, it's within your rights to turn them down, of course, because yes. they've, they've only been nominated by the software vendor. Um, if, you've got, if you've got grounds to for for form a bad business, don't do business with them. Yeah, and and also if there's a potential conflict of interest. You know, for example, if one of the big four has done some consultancy for you at some point and they're then nominated as the auditor, I would say that's grounds to reject them just on a conflict of interest. Yeah. And, and part of your audit policy could well be too, is that you, you know, part of any NDA or whatever agreement you have with that third party is that if they audit on behalf of one vendor, they're not back in six months' time on, in a revolving door capacity representing another vendor. Yeah. Basically, basically because they've internally sort of had a word with vendor B and said, oh, by the way, you know, the, that particular client is in an awful position. Therefore, we know we can make more money for you. Yeah. A couple of other things for me that spring to mind is uh, as soon as you get an audit letter, then I think you should cease all sales activity with that vendor. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. You know, yeah. Cease all comms apart from support calls. Right, or you know, any RFIs, any prospecting should be put on the back burner to say, look, we acknowledge your audit, we take it incredibly seriously, therefore everything else is off until that's finished. Um, yeah, and I think you have to enforce that, it's back to the comms plan you were mentioning earlier. You have to say that everything comes through and, uh, uh, you know, whatever route you decide that, that to be, i.e. the ITEM manager or the commercial lead or whoever takes the lead, any comms comes through that person and any any kind of um sort of reneging on that is is, is forcibly reminded upon because otherwise you, you're right this is this is quite a resource intensive um uh, operation you need to make sure that they're kind of, they're kind of working with you to, to to drive the outcome that everyone wants which is the re resolution of it but without being disruptive so would you also include cloud services in that Everything. Oh, that's an interesting one. Yeah. But what if that actually <clears throat> stops business working? And the software totally agree. It's, it's about new services. licenses. It's about new licenses. Yeah. But if you wouldn't transact anything, yeah. But but I get that. But if you've got a vendor that you're buying a perpetual software from in terms of licenses, but also someone that you've got cloud services with, would you also stop any future investment in cloud services during the audit? Yes. Or would you only stop the licenses? Uh, well. Depends on depend. I, I mean, I've, I've stopped stuff when we did backup audits. Uh, when I've had backup audit, we stopped any future purchases of that product until the audit was settled. And we made a really big point of a 
telling the architectural team that that's sorry, you can't have it until we finish this audit because we don't know if you've got spare licenses or need to buy more. And also we told the salesperson because quite often the audits, the salesperson has a little bit of him, um, um, knowledge of the audit, but not all the time. I think, so I think gonna, the, the sales guy has the ability to take the audit off the table if the does. business is justified. What, what yes. we're talking about, David, is, is more like new business. And there's a, there's a word for a vendor that threatens to switch off your cloud if you don't behave in an audit. It's called blackmail. And it shouldn't be, you know, that's, that's bang out of order. No, no sorry, hold on. I'm not talking about them turning off. I'm, I'm just playing devil's advocate here and saying you've got a vendor, you're buying licenses off them, you've also got cloud services. Uh, again, devil's advocate, you guys are saying to start all new business with them and increasing cloud consumption surely counts as new business. Yeah. Would you stop that? Yes. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Uh, it, I think it depends. And, you know, as we all the devil's always in the details, um, it depends on on the start of the audit. If, if, if the cloud element is fairly confined and there is a demand for the business to carry on, if it's just for perhaps testing or whatever, and it isn't deemed a priority from in terms of production to the business, and maybe, um, but it could well be, um, you know, it could, it, could, it could need to be done. And if there is the agreement says, well, we know what the price is, we know it's, um, you know, 50 pounds per, per metric per month, whatever that metric might be, then, and, and that's what the business decides, and then that's fine. And that's why I sort of went, oh, that's a good point. David, because actually it's not, it's kind of new business, but it's it's not in, in the traditional of like, sit, let's sit around the table and negotiate. That's off the table, I would agree. But but something like this, and we'll, I would suggest it, it case by case. Yeah, I'd agree. I, I think um, I get that it's not technically new business, but it is increased revenue with the vendor that you're currently in a, you know, trying to sort out a, an audit with. Um, I agree. I think it's if it's going to be business critical and is actually going to stop something and it's just an extension of your existing cloud service, I get the principle of not spending any more money with them during an audit. Totally agree. But if it is something that's cloud service that's not actually related to an audit, I know you're giving the vendor that you're currently battling against more money, but if your business needs it, your business needs it from a cloud perspective. Yeah. Guys, I just want to—I just want to sort of um, Barry Barry um, listed off a, a really good um, um, list of um, stakeholders when it talked about sort of the letter hit the map first off. Um, to to Elizabeth, if this is the first time you're running through this, and I guess it is, maybe because you sent the letter in. If you are looking to get resource and to throw it and to get your first audit over the over the line from a strategy or a planning point of view, it might worth be well engaging if you have one a risk department as well. Your your, yeah. your risk your risk management um, would be delighted to hear somebody being proactive around managing compliance and risk in an IT. And, and, on, and on the point of risk, I, I'd say you know all the, a lot of the vendors will have some sort of scripts or some sort of utility for you to use to collect the data they need. I, I wouldn't just because they've got that doesn't mean you have to run it. Um, oh, absolutely. Because, because yeah. it, needs to, I mean, it needs to go through the same. You know, you've got you've got change management, you've got uh, test, you've got release for everything you touch as the network. And that, that I, I would say the scripts, uh, no matter how old and trusted it is, needs to go through that same process for your network unless the vendor, I, I can, be, unless the vendor can indemnify that their script won't take your network down. I've got to be honest with you, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to challenge that because me personally, I wouldn't even go that far. Um, now, we discussed this around Oracle audit clause. Was it last month, I think, with the change in the Oracle audit clause? 
most vendor audit clauses do not mandate how you must collect the data, how, how you must collect data. Right. And I think this is part of the scope setting exercise. I think right at the beginning, you, what you need to do is uh, understand what data you're going to need to collect and what data the vendor is going to say and how you actually go about collecting that. Yeah. And unless you actually have a contract that says you must collect the data using our script, I would just basically very politely turn around to the auditor or the vendor and say, no, we're not doing that. I mean, you can use the reasons for security and whatever. I'll just say, no, we're not doing that. We can provide the data this way. Here's the data you want. Job done. Yeah. And, yeah. And, I mean, and, I mean, sorry, just related to what you said before is you need to ask what products are they actually in here to audit for? Absolutely. And, and give them that information and that information only. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Strong. I mean, even to the point of, um, you know, being involved in an audit with, with one of the big four, and, um, and then say, well, we need this information, this information, this information. We said, well, we've got a discovery tool that does that. So no, 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 we've got to run out. Yeah. Got to run our scripts. So customer said, okay, fine. Run the scripts. And about two months into the audit, they went, can we have that data, please? I said, well, why do you want it now? Because you didn't want it two months ago. So, you know, there, there, there are... There's, there's certain gaps appearing, even even some of the most established auditing partners, where they perhaps don't necessarily have the eye for detail that perhaps some of the guys on the call have, um, that, that do make these kind of strange decisions and that, that actually elongates the process, ties up your resource from a, from a compute perspective as much as a resource um, employee perspective. So I think it's all about that scope definition, setting the boundaries, making sure that there, there is validity in, in, in doing the audit in the first place, looking <laughs> through the contracts, which can be sometimes troublesome because either from the vendor perspective, they don't have the latest signed version or from the customer perspective, they don't have the signed version. But if, if there is no premise to, to do that, then it's about how you position, how you respond to the to the vendor by saying, you know, is this act, you know, is this an obligation or is this something you want to do? So I guess they can be treated in two separate separate ways. And if you're just start, starting out as well, I, I would uh, urge people to track every audit request and maybe go back in time and find previous letters and find out what happened. And then you can almost do a diary and say, well, this is, we anticipate this vendor coming at this time. And you can almost do like a pipeline of stuff that might happen. And I think I've seen people justify their sound practice purely based on here's the last the audits for the last two years, and this is what I've this was the original ask, and this is what we actually settled for, or this is what this is the ones we thwarted, and you can justify your entire team based on that progress. Yeah. Can I just I, challenge I Stuart's, Stuart's comment about the latest contract as well? Um, that may not always be relevant if you're being if you're running a legacy version. Um, and have a contract with a legacy vendor that's then been taken over by the new one. Because unless you've upgraded, you're still bound by the terms of the previous agreement, hence the uh, semantic veritas breakup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm in the latest signed agreement, as in the one that, yeah, from, from the, the point of when that contract will be kept, contract became binding, not, because yeah, as you mentioned, yeah, there is lots of examples of acquisition divestments where some of that, uh, what should we say, Transition of important contractual data wasn't particularly um, enforced. 
Yeah, no, I agree. <laughs> yeah. I'm, so, I'm just, so, just going to throw in as well because I'm, I'm feeling mischievous. Um, obviously, with certain vendors, what you need to be aware of is that you, you could be bound by several different sets of terms for the same set of products or, or across the audit. I mean, Microsoft is a classic example of that because obviously they have a complicated methodology for making sure you understand what product use rights and product terms you're bound by. And, and that's linked to the start of agreement dates, when they release version upgrades. So you could actually have an audit from Microsoft and be trying to keep in mind and trying to understand six or seven different sets of product terms. Uh, yes, so that's, that's important to bear in mind as well. And that gets more complicated with Oracle and IBM, yeah. particularly where you've got master services agreements referencing particular contracts. Yeah, and, and with IBM, with the uh, the license information documents are linked to the version that you're actually running rather than the license you have. So if you've got like a license for version 9 of MQ and you're running version 7.5, you have to abide by the terms of version 7.5. We, we should add that we have a former auditor on the podcast and uh, he's, he's seen the light and come out on the dark side. <laughs> <laughs> and he's now doing his penance as an independent consultant. Jeff? I am. Yes. <laughs> roll up, roll up. Which Boo, his... <laughs> Get your audit support. Which one would I like to do first? Or most depends on the customer. So one of the things that I've heard leveled at auditors from the big four audit firms, for example, Jeff, is, uh, and you may or may not want to comment on this, is that they are trained in forensics and IP and copyright and protecting that for the vendor. They're not necessarily licensing savvy and they're not necessarily they don't really understand maybe what the business is trying to do with that software. How, what would, how would you answer that? Uh, carefully. Um, <laughs> the <laughs> most, a number of consulting companies um, do tend to have their SAM audit functions in their forensic teams <clears throat> only because you can come up with some very novel ways of collecting data <clears throat> and validating data which only forensic IT people would really get. Um, um, and to be honest, in most cases you're only following a playbook that's been set down by the the software publisher. So, um, and quite often you're not always producing the results yourself. You are collecting the data, creating a draft, running it through with the software vendor replaying it to customers. So you do have you have ample time to sort of, oh yeah, I haven't quite done that calculation correct or this calculation correct. But what's really interesting is that they will quite often miss the fact that you may have uh, particular agreements in place because the vendor doesn't necessarily tell them that, oh, XYZ company has a legacy agreement which allows them to have <clears throat> two copies of the software installed for every license they've purchased yeah, or any special terms and agreements. So they're always quite nice ones to keep under your hat <clears throat> until the audit's being finished and then say, against which license metric did you produce this report? Oh, we haven't got that one. We've got this one. And, and that I've had, I've been on the receiving end and I've actually, um, I've, I've done, I've been on both ends of that one is I've actually sat with a customer while they said, but we don't have that license metric. And um, I actually managed to get my own back on the same company. Coming, coming back to your point as well, Martin, about how um, they don't always understand the license terms. I, I've got some real world, world experience that actually completely backs that point up. Um, 
you know, I've been up against two or three of, of the big four, some of the audit teams across major vendors, and there are times where they really don't understand the licensing has been my experience. You know, I'm, I'm not going to name names, obviously, um, or vendors for that matter. But, I mean, I've, I've had auditors from certain big four companies quoting vendor data sheets for a licensing methodology in the past, and I've been like, well, what's that got to do with it? It's not a contract. Yeah. You know, I hear um, you. I mean, it's, it's, it is actually a, a common thing, so I think I think it's uh, it is a problem, and this again comes back to where you need to make sure you've got the right license expertise available. And if you don't have it within your internal organisation, uh, bring in uh, bring in cough cough a consultant to to help you out with it. Uh, I completely, Barry. No, I completely agree with that. I had a vendor um, actually ask me to define what a terabyte license was. Um, as they were tracking yeah. us against a different license model, and they said, "Sorry, what's a terabyte license?" Like, hold on, you're from the vendor. You asking me? Yeah, oh. I think. But, I think that, but that's an interesting point, well. actually. That's a really interesting point. Um, if you have a look at some people's definitions of a CPU or a core, it is completely different from other people's. So, yeah. you need to make sure that <clears throat> when you get the audit letter to and you're having your first meeting with the auditors. To, Ask them what their definitions of the license metrics are that you're being audited against. Yeah. yeah. It comes back to understanding your contracts again, doesn't it? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. What, yeah. But you, you may think you know what a CPU is or a core is, but it is completely it is differently defined, particularly when you yeah. go into cloud or virtualization. So, you know, it's just knowledge, isn't it? And, and it would, yeah. It's worth mentioning as well about data and quality <laughs> because... Uh, it's worth considering that you know if a, if a vendor has a user-based model, they might ask for access to Active Directory, for example, to count your users. And if your users are woefully out of date and you've got a bloated Active Directory, they're going to take that top number, which might. So you know, the, the answer to that is actually not to give them access to the Active Directory, but to do a screenshot of the users within that group. Right. In, right. in such like, ways, my, it demonstrates Active Directory. My, my point is, they're going to take data that's going to be in their best interests. Yeah. Oh, um, absolutely. Which is why you don't to scrutinise its yeah. accuracy and double check it before agreeing anything, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I just wouldn't give them the access. End of. Maybe no, I'm being a bit. bit no, I, I agree. I think there's always an element of whatever scripts they ask you to run. <clears throat> it has to go through change control, security assessment. And then make sure you know understand what the data is you're sending them because even a simple Active Directory output, and we all know most people's accuracy of AD is woefully poor. Um, you know you can quite easily add on twenty percent of your users in AD just because you haven't tidied them up recently. Yeah, and it's such a shame how often there's a change freeze in your organisation as well, isn't it? Well, it's, it's yeah. I mean, if, you're in, if you're in retail, it starts about now until Christmas, doesn't it? Yeah. Mm. yeah. Well, I've done that with a retailer where you know I think they were getting more transactions through in December than every other month of the year put together. Yes. Yeah. So, I think that particularly online shopping. That's you know that's yeah. just one area where yeah. you can't retailers, do anything. Retailers make their profit for the year in December, don't they? They're not going to mess yeah. out of an audit at that time. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, uh, what might be a good thing to clarify is why. Why is a customer in the crosshairs in the first place? Why are they getting an audit letter? It might be worth digging into sort of the signals that give that, that vendors are looking for, uh, or, or why why have why has an end user actually been uh, selected for for audit? Can I answer this one? 
okay. having having run a couple of audit programs. Um, uh, and I'm going to be very careful not to name the vendors, but if I do, someone please edit it out. Um, <laughs> typically, there are there are two elements. One one is the the salesperson just might be really hacked off with you. You're not getting anywhere, so you, they decide that right. I'm not going to get any revenue from them for this year. I'll just they, they've been playing me along, so I'm just going to I'll, I'll suggest they go for an audit. <clears throat> and and in some cases they have to justify the reason. Um, and it, that's quite easy process. That's normally a Friday afternoon conversation with their audit program team, and the audit letter goes out a couple of days later. From the other side, if if you're in a multi-year agreement um, and you do not um, balance out your licensing versus your consumption at the predefined period, either you, you don't do it or it's counted as a zero, and then you've got press saying to you that you've actually got um, um, we've just acquired this company or we've just announced huge growth. These are all things that the larger software companies have teams of people looking at on a regular basis. So um, if your CEO stands up at the end of the year saying we've just announced 20% growth and we're going to increase our salespeople by, uh, you know, increase our employees by 10%, that software vendor will look to see whether or not you've actually increased your software purchases by 10%. And they, and they have the, all the data feeds from Dun & Bradstreet and things, don't they, Joe? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So these are pretty much automated feeds. Um, and then it's really a case of if you raise enough red flags across this sort of method, you'll get an audit letter. And it might be you only want to raise one of those flags or two of them. Some cases, the account manager will say, look, I don't want that customer to be audited because I've got a big deal going on. Uh, other times they're quite happy to just welcome it, um, and then there's an assessment goes on that says, right, okay, what's the what's the potential risk, and why do we think it is a risk, and you know, if we really irritate them enough, what's the chances of them moving? And we know you can't move away from some of the big vendors very easily, so they normally go ahead with it. And I think it's worth stressing as well that the, these audits cost the vendor money. And oh yes. Yeah. Every every time they deviate from their process, that's adding money and yep. time to the process. So yeah, and and they're paying the they're paying a third party quite typically to actually do the work for them, and that third party has to deliver a certain amount of effort, and then they have the option of going back to the vendor and saying, look, it's taking a little bit longer um, because of X, Y, and Z, and then the vendor may pull the plug. Or they may they might say carry on, yeah. And, and and I think the ultimate for me is to have this concept of audit ready, whereby uh, you, you know you're not perfectly compliant all times, but you you know that if you get the knock on the door, as Barry says, you know what the process is, you know what the policy is, and within a certain number of steps, you can present a position back to the vendor pretty quickly to say go away, thwart that audit because we're in, on top of our game, and you don't need to. You know, they can knock on the door, but they can't come in. Yeah, and I think that's that's an interesting point, actually. <clears throat> and I think someone else mentioned it about the auditors saying to another vendor that, oh, we've just done that one, they're really bad position. Um, when I was an auditor, we never we weren't allowed to do that. That was absolutely really, really strict rules. <clears throat> um, but as a customer, 
I'm very, very aware that when you had one audit, you typically had another audit pretty much from another vendor. And it was either, um, they were very closely linked, let's put it that way. Um, but actually, when you get robust audit defense processes and you suddenly don't get uh, audit findings, significant audit findings, those audits drop off quite dramatically as well. So it's sometimes worth going through an audit and then saying, oh, look, I've got no findings and make it very public or within your community. <clears throat> that knowledge somehow gets round. So it is good sometimes to have a, an audit and then make sure you have no findings and then the chances are you'll get less audits as a result. And, and I think that, that actually is something we've not really covered in too great a depth yet is when, when you get to the sharp end of the audit, when your auditor has sent you back a draft DLP. So typically, if it's a third party, they'll send you a draft DLP which uh, they would expect you to agree before it goes to the vendor. Make sure you validate every single well. I say everything on there, but where there's a negative finding, make sure you validate everything. Look at the data they've used, question the data they've used, look at the way they've applied the licenses, make sure that the logic of the licenses is correct and, and in the terms of your contract. Don't let them allow, don't allow them to send it back to the vendor unless you've absolutely validated all the data in there. Because uh, once it goes back to the vendor, that's it, it's too late. You can't argue the case there. Uh, well, you can. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, and this is something I put into a, um, a webinar I did a couple of years back. And it was about, you know, do you, if you want to play the auditors at their own game, you actually let them make mistakes and let them present them back to the, the vendor. Uh, providing you can spot them, you just wait for them the next call, which is normally the vendor, the auditor and yourself to go through the findings. And um, you then just pick it apart. Which is a fair point, Jeff. I'll, I'll, I'll give you that one. I must admit, me personally, I, I normally make sure it's right before it goes back. However, yeah. I will also take make the effort and, and take the time to point out to the vendor where the auditor got it wrong as well. Yes, I think it just depends on how that audit particularly goes, doesn't it? You know, yeah. as, a, as an auditor, I used to hate, people used to hate me turning up and they used to lock me in a very you know, isolated room in a building. And when it came to lunchtime, they used to say... Um, Oh, the sandwich man came around at 12 o'clock. There's nothing else locally. It's like, oh, cheers, guys. Thanks. Uh, and yet, and so that sort of spurred you, me on to try and find something. Do you, do you really expect sympathy? <laughs> no, no, yeah. not at all, no. <laughs> you, you should be grateful that you didn't audit Danny Begg at any point because he'd have just dumped 2,000 <laughs> pages of uh, script output on your desk. <laughs> you've got to deal with it. Well, yes, exactly, yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, that's that's always the interesting one, isn't it, about how much data you give them and what format you give it to them in. Yeah, absolutely. It's all about the relationship with a vendor as well. I think a lot of it is, you know, it, totally. it's strategic. If it's if it, if it is relatively friendly, it's just something that they've been asked to do. Um, again, you, you can you, you'll you'll determine how robust you need to be during the course of those conversations. Yeah. Um, I was just going to say as well, there was an interesting point Eric Chu raised at the um, the item review conference, I think it was in, in America some time ago. A lot of clients, um, their, their procurement function may find that if they are dealing with some of the, the larger vendors, because they are spending seven, eight, you know, plus figures um, over a contract, they feel that, um, oh, well, we're, we're pals with them now. They won't audit us. You know, because we're so big, we're, you know, relatively speaking, yes, the contract is big for that client, for that company, 
But in the greater scheme of things, your IBMs, your Microsofts will have tens of thousands of clients of your size. So don't don't get lulled into that thing of like we're spending a lot of the company's money on software, therefore we won't get audited. Yeah, absolutely yeah. agree. Well, it is a common mistake that a uh, common trap that people fall fall into. I think. Yeah, I think it depends. Right. So I mean, that's that's a really interesting point, Kay. So if you are on certain manufacturers' tier programs. <clears throat> Uh, and you are a level one being the highest, that's to have an audit that has to go up to head office. Uh, there's no two ways about that. I mean, you know, you, but you have to be a massively large organization to do that. If you're a mid tier organization and in some vendors eyes, a mid tier organization is still 70,000 seats, that sort of size, that only has to go up to a regional level for authorization for an audit. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, you're absolutely right. You know, just because you've got a good relationship with the vendor, that relationship can be, you know, you could you could have screwed the vendor over for a large sum of money. Still, they still might think you've got a good relationship with them. Um, and the salesperson says, well, actually, I didn't get my bonus this year because I missed out on the target, my revenue, because you screwed me over. So guess what? I will get it back one way or the other. Yeah. Job Job of the week, IT Asset Manager at Commonwealth Bank Australia. Anyone have a chance to look at this one? I did. Um, And I think it's quite an interesting one because you don't often get end of support listed as an ITAM function. It was end of life as well, wasn't it? It wasn't just uh, Uh, software, hardware and software. Uh, specifically, it lists, I mean, it does reference end of life a little bit further down, but EOS is listed pretty much on every other line all the way down through the job spec. I suppose it's all linked to um, security updates and the cyber threat landscape. Once the support is withdrawn, then you're opening yourself up. Maybe that, yeah. If you look at SQL and, and Windows 7 and 10 and all the the WannaCry related activities that I think probably has focused people's mind on on keeping up to date more frequently than perhaps they did before. It's nice to see that that component has been um, put in with an asset management role rather than what's typically either security or application owners. Architecture and all that kind of Architecture, thing. yeah. I mean, I, I don't know about you guys, but what I would see as an asset management function, and that's obviously all around version control in technology portfolios or, or you know, um, whatever you want to call them. I, I think that's actually actually a responsible thing to do and, and relatively mature actually putting that with asset management and giving them the responsibility to monitor all of that yeah. and look at what's out there in the state and whether it actually meets the, the version control and the, uh, and the asset life cycles. It's interesting because there's not many tools that will do it accurately down to the service packs, <clears throat> um, high level, won't they? But I think this is why there's an awful lot of reporting in this drug because it states you need experience with SQL, Tableau, and other dashboard reporting. Yeah. So I think you're expected to draw your um, HAM IT asset management data from various different sources. How much of a SQL knowledge you need, I don't know whether you need to know SQL coding or whatever. Um, and Tableau is an interesting one. So I doubt there's much Power BI then unless that's covered in the dashboard dashboard reporting. I've never seen Tableau listed as a 
have experience with Tableau reporting. Not as a prerequisite, no. No. I mean, it's, it's pretty enough. It's easy enough to learn anyway, but to actually have it listed in a job spec is quite uh, is very specific. Yeah, I, I suspect I want you to be more customer facing so that you're setting them up for other people on reporting as opposed to just purely, you know, here's item via Tableau. Well, it probably means, uh, as you mentioned, it, getting the, the details out of tools that come out mm. of that reporting is difficult, though. So, yeah, the interesting the wording is SQL Tableau and dashboard reporting, not kind of any of like the Click or the Power BI or anything like that. And there's no reference, unless I'm mistaken, to experience with SAM tools or ITAM tools. I can't see a mention of a Snow or a Flexera or an Asper or anywhere. You, are you no, more likely to be dealing with the output and managing the tool itself if you've got that sort of focus of role? We'd still need to know how to do the reports from them, right? Yeah. And, and it, is a management, a, it is a management job rather than a, uh, a doing job. Right. <laughs> oh, meow. <laughs> wow. I have, I have people uh, that do that for me, actually. You know? <laughs> <laughs> It does say manager of IT asset management, not <clears throat> a SAM consultant or a SAM person, a SAM analyst. Yeah. Just oh, as a, that a, manager. a little added perk, isn't Commonwealth Bank of Australia, it's in Sydney, I think it's one of the skyscrapers that overlooks Sydney Harbour Bridge, so there's a little perk for you as well. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. Really, rather nice. Very um, nice. It's. It, I, I think this this role is is kind of where it's going. It, this IT governance um, kind of approach, where ITAM is part of part of a bigger function. You've got so much to do as an ITAM, uh, sorry, as an IT department to comply with regulations. Um, every you know, every six months it seems there's there's a new regulation coming along, which further kind of puts extra um, extra requirements on you. Know, I'm just looking at actually alongside this particular ad on um, on LinkedIn. There's loads of IT governance roles um, uh, listed as well in the, in, um, in Australia. So maybe it's a thing down there, but maybe it's maybe it's a particular. Um, I mean, obviously they're bank, so so they're a financial institution, and, and they've got all sorts of regulations going on anyway. You've got GDPR as well, um, uh, PCI. I would imagine the Australian version of GDPR, whatever that's called. Exactly. Yeah. 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 The Australian Privacy Act and so on. Um, and and yeah, if your lifecycle management becomes really important for for, for PCI, you're you're only allowed to run software that's in support. Um, so this is this is the logical sort of the kind of where it's going. I think. Um, I think like like certainly, certainly vendors are doing it as well. I know, know vendors are talking more about broadening out and having the central kind of the central repository of stuff, which you then can build many views from, depending on on. On whether you're a you know, security guy or or or, or a CMDB, CMDB person or, or service management or whatever, I think also it's, it's almost like looking at what the point of it is in the first place. So, I mean, for example, we were talking. I was talking to a customer this week about backup. So, yeah, backup's a tick box because the bit you actually need to do is to find the bit you need to back up and restore it, and that's the bit that's really important. Is finding the data. In the same way, this is like. Um, this is about saying, where's the risk going to come? Where's the compliance necessity? And work back from that outcome rather than just going, oh, I need a compliance report in the ELP, which I guess is, again, can be a little bit tick boxy unless there is a, a specific need for that 
Yeah, I think like like Barry said, I think this is a sign of maturity, and and if the team has already cracked some of the low-hanging fruit and they're looking at this, I think it's a real sign of maturity. So kudos to Commonwealth Bank of Australia. Um, moving on. Like, jargon buster. <laughs> jargon buster! CMDB. Now, we, we had a discussion about this, about whether you could have an asset management role and not necessarily know what CMDB is, especially perhaps if you're in the SAM, uh, SAM role. Licensing centric, you wouldn't necessarily know what CMDB is. Not everyone has done it. Uh, what, what's our thoughts on this? And anyone fancy describing CMDB to start off with? Well, I think. Shall I? Go on. Go on. <laughs> I? Who's got the stopwatch? Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'll, I'll keep this brief. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 40 minutes, I could definitely nail this. Um, I mean, I think. Especially if you look at how ServiceNow position it all, CMDB is the golden record, and it's the kind of, I guess, the the heartbeat of the organisation. It tells you where all, all of your stuff is, how it's all interconnected, interdependencies, and all that kind of stuff. So, if someone rings up the help desk and says, "Oh, I've got this problem with my with my software or my hardware," they can actually look at what else is interconnected to that device and start to problem and instant change manage it. To be, become much more efficient, much more centralised. That's the theory, right? Anyway. But what does it actually stand for, Stuart? And how does it relate to Cake? Um, it's the Configuration Management Database. Do I get the job? I would um, say, can I have a go at this? Can I have a go at this? So, oh, please. Configuration Management <laughs> Database. And I would say, related to Cake, this is the recipe because uh, I'd still. And IT service management folks are focused on service, and the CMDB allows them to say what are all the underlying parts that support that service. So it's most like the recipe of everything that's supposed to be in there. So if anything's missing, then you can look back at the recipe and see what's missing and how that's going to impact the flavour of the cake. Well, I'm going <laughs> to respectfully disagree with that now. Yeah, it's also the ingredients. Respectfully. So no, I actually because obviously it's. CMDB is not about the ingredients. CMDB for me, the ingredients are the individual servers and applications and whatever. CMDB is the whole that it supports. So if you want to, if you want to go back to some of the cake analogies I've used in the past, you know, if we say yeah, a server is a cake of some form, the CMDB is the display case in the cake shop that actually supports all of the cakes and links them all together. We're, we're really, we're really straining <laughs> the metaphor cakes. now, aren't we? What? Be that, mofos. <laughs> Um, like the cake carousel. <laughs> yeah, let's go with that. Cake tray. <clears throat> so imagine the carousel. Instead of like horses bobbing up and down, there are all cakes. Is it, is it okay. a generation game cake? We're going to have to compare okay, it. Okay, okay, okay. Enough already. Enough already. Otherwise, we're going to we're going to lose well, it. That was quick. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, folks. That's a wrap. Cheers, guys. Cheers, have a good guys. Weekend, Cheers, guys. Have a good Take one. care. Speak soon. All right.